Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers the short-lived pizza-licious Pringles flavour, which worryingly didn't specify which sort of pizza it was. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today for a second time to talk about some of the things that she remembers that no one else ever seems to, is journalist Emma Burnell. Emma, what are you up to and where can we find it? Well, mostly I'm writing for various uh, publications on politics a lot and theatre a lot. Those seem to be my two specialties at the moment. You can find all of my journalism at my website, which is called politicalhuman.com. Right, well, that brings us neatly sort of into your first choice, which is about a very non-political human, but... As I couldn't find anything resembling a clip to go with it, here's something else. The changing of the guard, we used to be respected as members of the aristocracy. The Earl of Windermere has raised a mortgage on his mansion, and now he's paying back at 30 pounds a week, which he makes from showing people on the manor for a half a dollar. Okay, well, that's late 60s non-hit The Change in the Guard by the Marquis of Kensington, because that's the nearest thing that I could come up with that was anything like the look and feel and storyline of this book. So, Emma, what was the Royal Potwasher? Royal Potwasher was one of my absolute favourite children's books when I was a very little girl. And it's just the most beautiful children's book. The colours in it are so gorgeous and wonderful. It's like opening a bag of sparkling jewels it's just and the story is very simple and very sweet basically alexander is the lowest of the lowest of the low in the kitchen of the palace and then the king declares that he's going to have a great feast and everybody is going to make one dish and so lots and lots and lots of the chefs the pastry chef makes these amazing cakes and you know the meat chef makes this amazing meat and Alexander gets designated that he's going to make macaroni. But he's also the only one who does the maths about how many people there are in the kingdom that are going to come to this party. So he ends up making the macaroni in the royal bathtub because he needs <laughs> to have that much macaroni. So everyone else runs out of food. And then he wheels in the bathtub and saves the day and is designated a guard and he gets everything he ever dreamed of. It's just a very, very, very sweet little book. And I don't know anyone else who had it i don't know where we got it from i think it might be american quite a few of the books that i like that nobody else has heard of turn out to be american because my mum went to america when she was a little girl she lived there for a year so uh we have a couple of books like that well i'm not sure you see because i i did wonder if it was american because it's got that very sort of it's a bit like the beatles cartoon where mm-hmm. particularly the one where there's some burglars going to rob any lane no it's got that american cartoonish view of britain in the 60s except i noticed that the illustrations which by the way are amazing and alexander himself looks very much like john lennon in the sergeant pepper (laughs) it's quite quite a lot again beatles cartoon link but they were by jill mcdonald who people probably don't know her name but they probably would know her work by sight because she did a lot of stuff for puffin books including the puffin logo oh Oh, how sweet. Oh, there you go. Maybe it's a better known book than I thought, but I haven't come across anyone who knows what the hell I'm whittering on about when I talk about it. Well, no, because the only picture of it on Amazon is a very bad photograph of an actual copy of it. And it's one of those ones as well where there's, you know, like two copies used and new for £84.93. Yeah. So I think it probably is quite, it's definitely forgotten about because... 
It took a bit of finding online, actually. It is worth looking up for the artwork because it is so very, very beautiful. And I do have a copy, which I will treasure and not sell for 80 something pounds on eBay. But it is just a lovely, very sweet, very simple, very happy, but just charming and beautiful children's book. You say charming and beautiful, but do you know the name of the man who wrote it? You know, I don't think I do. Isn't that terrible? I do have to say that Bunce, it's not that one, but it's John Waters. Oh, dear. <laughs> so it might be deeply psychedelic, but it's, it's not like pink flamingos. Don't worry. No, no. Yes, no, nobody is doing any nasty things with... Uh, they're only eating macaroni, Tim. <laughs> if that reference is lost on you, listeners, please keep it that way. That's yeah, all I'm going to say. <laughs> but there were quite a lot of books around then that had that real sort of post-psychedelic children's literature artwork. Mm-hmm. You know, real sort of pop art, multicolored thing. So, I mean, my favourite one was, I've actually got a copy of it now, was one called The Great Jelly of London, where they used the Albert Hall as a jelly mould. And a man mm-hmm. called the Diabolical Lem Bodge wanted to steal the jelly. There <laughs> were loads. People always go on about this one called The Flying 19, which I remember existed about a flying bus, which again, I think, might have been, an, you know, an American's view of a a good old London bus flying through the air. I'm not sure about that, but they all had this amazing artwork. And it's when you see sort of editions of Jack and Ori from around that time, you know, there's not Mm -hmm. many of them left now, but they've all got that amazing artwork as well. And Mm. it's quite sad that the people who drew this stuff, given how close their work was to what was on album covers and posters and things at the time, Mm. they've sort of been forgotten. I mean, you know, who knows who Jill MacDonald is, even though everyone's seen their work probably all day every day when they were children in fact they probably still use the same logo now do they uh, i think so i mean I, I don't know is the honest answer but i can't imagine i mean they haven't changed the penguin logo so why would they change the puffin one there was a book that i liked when i was a little girl it was a much more 80s children's book and it was for slightly more um slightly older children and i cannot find out what it was called and it's driving me mad so your listeners might know if they do know i'm emma burnell underscore on twitter It was an updated, quite feminist Cinderella. The only things I can remember about it was there was a scene in a laundrette and the ugly sisters wore a perfume that was described in the book as smelling like cat's piss and oranges. What? That's not enough to go on, I know, but I just cannot find this book and I loved it so much. So if anyone has a clue, let me know. If experience has taught me anything... Somebody out there will know what anyone on the show mentions is, apart yeah. from that film at the end of mine that I still can't identify. And people have genuinely suggested about 20 films that it isn't. Oh, uh, no. so, yeah. so last week, you, uh, you have, was it last week, the week before, you had Mark on, and he nicked The Tricky Troggle. I was like, that's my book that I remember that no one else remembers. <laughs> So, yeah, you, it just goes to show that we, we do all remember some things. There's a, there's a decent crossover in your audience. Well, one day I'll find somebody else who remembers the end, the sequel to the Cracker Joke book. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that, that the Ha Ha Bonk Joke book? I don't remember that. Do you remember the Bionic Banana? No. And what was it? Something like the Electric Chocolate Marshmallow Sunday which is the sequel to it. No. Did, did you read... How, oh God, we could go on for hours, but did you read um, How to Eat Fried Worms? That was a big one in our school. No, but you'll get me mentioning Never Wear Your Wellies in the House by Tom Baker next. <laughs> OK, well, I've no idea if anyone ever did try to adapt the Royal Potwasher into either a TV series or an animated film, but if they did, 
that will probably have ended up with a soundtrack which might have fitted neatly onto your next choice. We heard Ben Campbell sing Through My Eyes, and at the beginning, You're Breaking My Heart, James last in the orchestra. London's Lighter Touch, Melody Radio. Good evening to you. OK, well, that was David Gilby doing a bit of linking on a station called Melody Radio. Not to be confused with the current Chinese radio station. So, Emma, <laughs> what was it? Melody Radio was 24-hour easy listening radio station. And the gimmick was that the presenters on it weren't allowed to talk. They didn't, you know, there was no, all they did was say, this is this record and this is that record and say, Melody Radio 104.9 FM. And so in order to distinguish themselves from each other, every presenter said it a different way. It was hilarious. So it was like, Melody Radio 104.9 FM or Melody Radio 104.9 FM. It was so funny. They were so obviously trying to distinguish themselves from each other. And it was just it was just easy listening. And one of the ways my ex-boyfriend, my first serious boyfriend, used to have Melody Radio on on the other side of the room on his clock radio because it was just so awful in the morning that you just would get out of bed to turn it off. Wake Up Melody was very, very hard to, to get through. But sometimes it was absolutely cracking. And we used to just listen to it. Me and my weird 17-year-old mates for hours and hours. And it had quite niche adverts and just a whole bunch of easy listening, sometimes just instrumentals, sometimes, you know, cheesy pop. And we loved it. We absolutely loved it. Well, I don't think it was national because I remember reading about it, for reasons I'll come back to in a minute, where in an interview with Mike Flowers in the NME when Wonderwall was out, where he was actually saying that he couldn't understand why. Apparently they changed their policy from easy listening to sort of AOR stuff around the time he was in the charts with Wonderwall. And he was saying it used to be great and I used to love it. And now it's just quite kind of, you know, FM oldies rock. But I remember thinking, I've never heard of this station. And it may have, was it London only? I think it was London only. 104.9 is now XFM, I think. It is. And 105.4, which is its other frequency, is now Magic. Well, there you go. I mean, morphing into magic is more understandable than morphing into XFM. But yeah, I think it was London only, as most radio stations were much more regional in those days. There was that weird thing of, I mean, XFM was regional only, I say at first, but there was a tryout week when it was available nationally in, I think it was 1992. And the only reason I know that was because they played on it a Blur demo, which wasn't actually it was one of the abandoned songs for what became modern life is rubbish which didn't come out officially until the box set years and years later and i had the recording of that off air and i remember posting it to you know when i very first discovered the internet to a blur forum and i think for years and years the only recording out there was from my off air i mean what a different world that was. Wow, yeah. But yeah, they never went national with Melody Radio, which is when you think of how... Well, I was going to say when you think of how big the whole lounge thing was in the early to mid-90s, but it sounds as though it might not, from what you say, it might not be really in line with that. Was it more sort of crooners and... Yeah, it wasn't really... I mean, I don't know whether it was a money thing, but it wasn't like Waterfall Snarch or anything like that. It was stuff you very likely to... uh, Never to have heard of, or you might have done, because of you. Um, (laughs) But 
yeah, it was kind of cheesy pops that you've never heard of or kind of flowery light opera sometimes or songs from like really obscure musicals. <laughs> it's very bizarre. I so we did love it. We used to listen to it all the time. But I do remember there was one night that we changed. We we dialed into magic. Actually, this is a bit later. This is post-university. So Melody Radio was my pre-university. And post-university, we listened to magic because they were doing hits of the 80s. And we got drunk and we kept ringing them every half an hour to request Ghostbusters. And they were like, they were like answering the phone and going, we don't have Ghostbusters. How could they not have Ghostbusters? Well, that was our point. <laughs> what you should have done, you should have been really clever and got round it. That, oh, hang, hang on, it was magic so this won't work. So I say you should have asked for that ridiculous song by the Bus Boys on the Ghostbusters soundtrack, which yeah. probably would have fitted quite nicely on Melody Radio, but maybe not on Magic. Maybe not, maybe not. No, in the end, they made me request Shaka Khan and, and Rufus, and I'm like, but I want Ghostbusters. <laughs> That's a very strict policy they've got there. But... Yeah, he's like, you have to have Shaka Khan. I was like, how, oh, did they, okay. how did they make you request it? Well, they said, we haven't got it, but we can put you on air, but will you request this instead? And I'm like, oh, all right then. <laughs> <laughs> Even then, I was a media whore. <laughs> the advertising also on Melody Radio was was just brilliant in and of itself. I mean, it was usually ads for, I think, that weird CD recorder thing that you talked about with one of your guests was advertised on it. Oh, I the think. Brennan JB7. Yes. <laughs> I, I seem to remember something like that. But the absolute best one was this one voiced by Willie Rushton, who was quite clearly taking the piss. And God love him. So it'd be like, it was called, for a, for a product called The Essential Classics, which presumably was one of those sort of classical collections. And it was just, you'd have like a burst of Vivaldi and then just Willie Rushton saying this really clicked voice, do you have the essential classics? And then another burst of like Wagner or something. And then it goes, I do. And then another burst of like Beethoven. <laughs> it was just so clipped and weird and bizarre <laughs> and just hilarious. And God, God love Willie. I mean, I'm such a big fan of Willie Rushton anyway, because I loved, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. And I just, yeah, it was just lovely. So, yeah, even the adverts were just completely obscure and brilliant. Well, commercial radio adverts have always been a bizarre law unto themselves. Anyway, I remember being obsessed with, in the early 90s, Radio City, which was Liverpool's big independent at the time. They had a phase four. Every advert that appeared on seemed to be a weird, just about non-copyright sort of approximation of something that was going on at the time. Like, there was one where it was Ice Ice Baby with the order of notes reversed, so it went like dun 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 dun, dun and somebody doing a Vanilla Ice style rap over the top. There was one with somebody doing Bill and Ted voices saying totally fredacious do that. And the best one was somebody kept saying eat your shirt in a Bart Simpson voice. So they obviously didn't want to pay out for the original idea, but thought we should just copy that with slightly different words. Yeah, yeah, And we'll yeah. get away with it. And, of course, the other great one was when Kenny Everett did his famous, you know, the, the World's Worst Record Show, The Bottom 30, where he played all those terrible records. I think it was, on, it was only on Capital Radio. It was like a national news story. You know, Kenny Everett plays the worst records ever. But mm, the full mm, recording mm. of that, there's all these, like, odd adverts for, you know, sort of London-centric things. But there's a cinema showing the horror film Food of the Gods, you know, where animals turn on humans. And it's really sort of nasty trailer for it. And then Kenny Everett just pauses and says, hmm, sounds like a jolly jape. <laughs> he was uh, a lore unto himself, wasn't he, Kenny Everett? I liked that drama they did about him a couple of years ago. 
I think we watched that together, if I remember rightly. It was quite nice to, to remember him fondly. Um, I think he got a bit misinterpreted sometimes in his lifetime. So it was quite nice to sort of go back and think, oh, yeah, I still, I still really like him, really. <laughs> Even if he was a Tory. But do you think anyone will ever make a drama about Melody Radio? Uh, the boat that didn't rock. Then <laughs> <laughs> It's really save money on the script. It'd just be the same line again and again, said differently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that's all you could have in the script is different people going 104.9 FM. <laughs> Well, we've ended up with scripts so obliquely satirical, it could actually be the work of the author of your next choice. Let's just have a clip of it. Oh. <laughs> come here, come here, come here. Look, look, look at this. Look at this. I have to work with this, you know. I do. This is commercial television in crisis, ladies and gentlemen. This is. You don't wear rubbish like this when you work at the National Theatre, you know. Don't come to think of it, you don't wear anything at all down there. Ooh, look here. <laughs> Okay, well, I bet you're all laughing along at home. <laughs> That's a bit from Channel 4's adaptation of Dario Fo's Accidental Death of an Anarchist from 1983. So, Emma, how did you end up watching that? I think I watched it when I was under 10. My parents had a videotape of it. We had a video very early, and I just loved it. I didn't get it. You know, it took me... It wasn't until I was grown up and rewatched it that I got all the political part of it. But Gavin Richards, as the maniac is an absolute tour de force. Uh, he's just stunningly brilliant in it. And I think as a kid, I just loved his wackiness and I didn't really need the rest of the, the, you know, the political implications of it, of which there are many, because it's actually a, a, you know, a satire, a very dark satire about police corruption in, I think it's Milan. It's in Italy anyway. And, you know, state corruption and all of these things. And it, it's it's just super, and it's, there are other people in it who have one or two lines, but it is almost a one-man play. And Gavin Richards is just a revelation in it. He's just superb. Yeah, I think it's astonishing that I was looking into it. Apparently he's considered one of the foremost adapters of Dario Fo, which is a bit weird because most people will only know him from a lower low and Harpwick House, which really couldn't be well, further from... Enders. That's true as well, yeah, but... EastEnders, I was going to say, it doesn't really have the same comic overtones, but maybe it does. Well, he was a bit of a slapstick character in EastEnders, if I remember rightly. It sort of, kind of lots of things went wrong for him. He didn't accidentally kill an anarchist, did he? Was that what happened to Rod from, from the 80s in EastEnders? But basically, everyone on Albert Square accidentally kills someone. That's true. And also, when somebody was racing to save them, they'd run through a pu- impromptu party in the middle of the yeah. square, and someone's like, no, mate, I need you to stand still here for no, mate, no, mate, no, just stand still. No, I've got to get to now. St- I could have written these standards, really. Yes. Apologies yeah. to Andrew Collins if he's listening. <laughs> <laughs> but did you know it was actually broadcast on the 23rd of December 1983? Really? It's a great Christmas drama. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> Channel 4 in its early days did have a weird attitude to Christmas because I distinctly remember, because I was obsessed with Channel 4 when it first appeared because, you know, it was a new channel. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And being the sort of kid Very I was, I thought, Almost like there's a finite amount of Channel 4. You had to watch as much of it as you could. Even stuff like For What It's Worth and Union World. (laughs) I remember quite excitedly looking at the Christmas TV Times that year and thinking, ooh, what's going to be on Channel 4 on Christmas Day? And it was a presentation of the opera for The Love of Three Oranges. (laughs) I remember reading the description and thinking, oh, yeah. That sounds fun. <laughs> I, was re- 
I remember being really unimpressed. <laughs> yeah. But, the, I mean, they put some really weird stuff on. Like, I get it's only me that remembers this. There was a spoof documentary called The Curious Case of Santa Claus. Written by Bob Larby, who normally wrote a lot of sitcoms like The Good Life in Ever Decreasing Circles, with John Pertwee as a psychiatrist treating somebody who insisted he was the real Father Christmas. It was like the Leap Dave Williams film from 30 Rock, but <laughs> gone psychotic. Part of me thinks Jennifer was better in those days because it just did much more interesting things. But some of those interesting things were uh, highly experimental and not all of them worked. But Accidental Death did. You know, it's a, I think it's about 70 minutes, maybe a little bit longer, 70, 80 minutes. So not quite feature length, but not, um, not your standard. And, it, you know, very, very powerful ending, which I won't spoil for anyone who wants to watch it. But it was just really, really clever and fun and you know, huge amounts of wordplay, very physical comedy. And, you know, really kind of good politics. You know, it's not, not just good politics because I agree with its politics, but interesting adaptation and thought about what that in 1983 would have been a very interesting time to be critical of police corruption and violence well where his work's actually banned in italy at one point oh i wouldn't be at all surprised i'm fairly sure because i remember doing when i was in youth theater the pope and the witch which is another of his plays me being me i had to go and try and find out who he was and see i do remember reading that he was he was persona non grata at one point, in much the same way as many of those other sort of dissident writers from the, the late 70s who ended up being stabbed with poison-tipped umbrellas at bus stops. But uh, Dario Faux kept writing for a long time, didn't he? I believe he's got quite a heavy output. I mean, I, to be honest, this is what I know of him best. I should investigate him more because I do love this so much. It's so interesting and clever and well-written. Did you ever see any other productions of it? My friend Alex was in a production of it, and I didn't see it, but I, he, I used to help him rehearse occasionally, so I've seen him do an awful lot of it. <laughs> well, that would lead neatly into your next choice. I've just got to ask first, did you see any of the Red Triangle films? What are the Red Triangle films? You don't remember the Red Triangle? Um, no. <laughs> well, Channel 4 in the late 80s, because they wanted to show some contentious films... They had this idea that they transmit them with a red triangle in the top right corner to signify, you know, if you don't want to see this, don't watch. Oh, OK. So this is your way of looking at boobs, basically. Well, you see, that's what the popular misconception is. But most of those films are just politically sensitive. Ah, well, I probably, I probably watch the politics ones and you watch the boobs. <laughs> well, and there was the, that Australian one, The Clinic, about the STD clinic that had a young Mark Little in it. Oh, bless, little Joe Mangle. <laughs> yeah. But everyone tuned in. I, I think Frank Skinner once said in one of his routines something like, you know, he basically said it's quite disappointing when you sit there with your trousers around your ankles and it's about industrial relations in Chile. <laughs> He was pretty much on the money about the Red Triangle, but uh, let's let's move away from all that. Going back to the neat link that you gave me that I ignored, <laughs> here's a clip related to your next choice. Some of you, not all of you, some of you will have read my book. I wrote a book 30 years ago called A Woman in Your Own Right, and it still sells. And this year, I've completely revised and updated it. I thought it was time after three decades. But it was then about teaching women to interact with others from a basis of personal power. It was how to do it, the nuts and bolts of it, the skills needed. It still is. 
It still revolves around personal power and how this differs in profound ways from conventional forms of power, which we experience in hierarchical structures within our families, organisations, the whole of society. Okay, well, that's a TED Talk by one Anne Dixon on the subject of women and power. So, Emma, why have we just heard that? Because at the same time as I was reading the Royal Potwasher and the Cinderella book, I read on a beach in France a book called A Woman in Your Own Right by Anne Dixon, which is written for grown-up women all about assertiveness. I was definitely under 10 at the time, and it stayed with me ever since. And while I'm not always as assertive as I might be, I genuinely think that I have Anne Dixon to thank for some really, really excellent and well-imbibed and early-imbibed life lessons. And it's just a great book for women, or for anyone really, who wants to be more assertive, but also to understand the differences between assertiveness, passive aggressiveness, aggression, and just being a bit of a doormat. So it kind of really sets it all out. Right, well, I had a look at this. I mean, I'd never heard of it, but it's interesting that this was another one that took some finding on Google. I think the reason could possibly be it doesn't look or seem to read at all like the stereotype view of feminism of the 70s and 80s. It's more straightforward. It's more yeah. on the money. It's Which less... is probably why I found it so readable aged eight or nine. Well, but is that why it's been forgotten? Because there wasn't really... People couldn't line up behind it or there wasn't a, an angle to angle well, grind with, if that's the best not, way of putting it. Um... So... It's not a theoretical, it's not, not, not academically feminist. It's, you know, it's not um, trying to do the same job that Betty Friedan or Jermaine Greer or Naomi Wolf are trying to do. It's, it's more, it, it, I think it's probably closer to self-help than it is to academic feminism. Well, I mean, obviously I didn't read it at the time. I have tried to work out probably what I would have been reading at the exact same time. And I think it was the Guinness Book of TV Facts and Feats. Which I, I know that because I've got the copy that was in our local library. I, I was the only person ever got it out as far as I know. And it's got the date stamps on it. And it does appear to be from then. And I'll just all I will say is on the cover, it's got a cameraman, Benny Hill, Selena Scott and Tess Card F. So that was how I was educating myself at the time. I think I would have been better off reading a woman in your own right, actually. I, I think everyone should read it. And yeah, while it is pitched at women, really anyone could, could benefit from the interesting discussion within about different types of behaviours. So has Anne Dixon, I mean, obviously we just heard they're doing a talk, she's still active and so on. Has she done many other major works? She did another book, which I have but haven't read yet, called The Mirror Inside, something like that, which I believe is about female sexuality. So I think it's quite close to the kind of Nancy Friday stuff. Yeah, I did look into her background a bit. It sounds like she was an assertiveness trainer before she wrote this book. So, I mean, that's good grounding, really, to actually know your subject area before you... Yeah, exactly. I mean, she, you know, she, she does this for a living. She knows what she's talking about. I was grounded very well in feminist literature, more kind of in terms of fiction than the academic side of work. But my mum did quite a lot of that kind of reading of 
self-help books, feel the fear and do it anyway, all of that kind of thing. And I tried to get into some of them. What Colour Is Your Parachute? I definitely read that one. And I sort of picked and choose. To be honest, I think I picked this book up because it had a very shiny silver cover, which is what attracted me. But to be fair, that's also how I got into one of my favourite authors ever, Douglas Copeland, because I really liked the cover of Shampoo Planet. And also you could have picked up the soundtrack to The Monkey's Head, which would have taken you off in a different direction. (laughs) Yes, then I would have been you. (laughs) (laughs) Shortly after that, I read The Women's Room, which... I revisit all the time. It's genuinely my favourite book. It's so incredible. I probably also read Catch-22 a little bit later. I always put the two of those together. I think I had a summer where I read the two of them together and I just like got very radicalised. I'm a feminist raised by a feminist. So there was a lot of sort of, you know, I, I was taken to Greenham Common, for example, and I was from a very young age told about my equality and my right to that and it's a shame that I feel like we're going backwards in many ways but I think my feminism is is my strongest value and you know was instilled in me from day one so thanks mum and I just think you know actually giving an eight-year-old book on a certain list to read is quite a brave thing for a parent to do to be honest because I was quite good at standing up to them well I mean that is why I like to get so many female guests on looks unfamiliar because you know it's not quite sort of leading the charge for feminism I'm going to admit that I'm not you know (laughs) not saying I am an ally but it's good to have a different take on nostalgia really you know the the usual same things again and again and again not that any of my guests have chosen the same things I should say that everyone's really you know everyone really puts effort in but it's always good to get that take like when Jenny Morrill chose the Boots Global collection I was delighted the second I saw Mm. that on the list yeah and and I just think oftentimes the nostalgia stuff that we see is so driven by male nostalgia everyone remembers this toy and it's like action man and i don't give a shit about action man although on the other hand when they do star wars figures i had a millennium falcon i had all the star wars figures i didn't think that was a boy's toy i thought it was a toy of a film that i loved every single person in my school had the same red darth vader lunchbox but there does seem to be a kind of a huge disparity and just and also dis disparaging of the things that girls remember so I'm really glad that you've had as many excellent female guests as you have and I always enjoy listening to them and sometimes I remember their stuff and sometimes I don't but it's always fun to listen to well sometimes I do because when you've got that many sisters you do tend well, to remember yeah. things like the problem page from Miz and so on yeah. as much yeah, as you, you remember battle and action <laughs> Okay, well, we're moving not so neatly into your next choice, which really, really underlines your young feminist credentials. (laughs) Ah, yeah. Yeah, I slightly fall down on this one, don't I? loading tone because as far as I can tell this game was completely silent on every single platform it was released on so Emma what was the Lords of Midnight? Lords of Midnight was a total and complete ripoff of Lord of the Rings. It was a computer game which you could win in two ways, either by winning a whole bunch of battles or by throwing a ring into the crack of something that wasn't quite the crack of doom, but you know it was. And 
you would go around and collect various lords and recruit them to your cause. The only one I can remember was called Lord Shadow. And the reason I remember him is because my uncle used to be a roadie. And he and his mates, when they weren't on the road with various rock bands, would get very obsessed with computer games. And he made a map for Lords of Midnight, which he then gave to me and my mum when we decided to play the game. And so we used the map and he had this thing marked out on the map called the Shadow Run, where Shadow would go and recruit another eight lords and you could have this really long turn. It was great. The reason that this game, which was very silly and very, very basic and completely ripped off of Lord of the Rings, has stuck in my brain is because my family still say to each other when good things happen, victory goes to the free which is what the phrase would be used when you won a battle against the badness. I had a look, and the names of some of the lords, there is Lord Shadow, as you say. Yeah. There's also Lord Blood, Lord Ithron, Lord yeah. Jacaru Kith, I don't know how you say that, Farflame the Dragon Lord, and it says here, plus the Utarg of Utarg. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> Can't have a game without the Utarg of Utarg. And it says here the game is to be played in three ways. Firstly, it's a straight adventure game where the goal is for Morkin to destroy the Ice Crown, the source of Doomdark's power. The second is as a war game, recruiting other lords and their armies until you are strong enough to defeat Doomdark's army to storm his citadel in the far north. A third variation, referred to in the manual as the Epic, requires the player to complete the game both ways simultaneously. Now, I'm going to say, that's not exactly horoscope skiing, is it? <laughs> Doom Dark, that's right, good lord. I mean, it was just, it's just so blatant. I mean, it's more Lord of the Rings than Lord of the Rings in some ways. Uh, it's just hilarious. But it was, it was fun. And me and my mum, I remember our little girls playing it on our C64 and staying up with my mum until two in the morning until victory went to the free. And I, I, my mum's not a gamer. How on earth did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> but there you go. These things that we do. Well, the one that I remember playing for hours and hours and hours with the ZX Spectrum version of The Hobbit which apparently oh God, just, wasn't finishable. I always heard. got stuck with the sodding trolls. Did you never figure out how to get out of there? I think I just, I think I did eventually, but I just got bored of getting stuck in the sodding trolls over and over and over again. <laughs> you just had to move back slightly and wait until morning and they turned into stone. But, that's right, yes. But so, that said, I had heard the Radio 4 The Hobbit by then, so that yeah, did help. That would help, yeah. Were you big on strategy games? I loved those text adventure games. Those were there was another one that I loved, which I played around the same time as Lords of Midnight, called Lords of Time. And Lords of Time went through various different time periods. So you start off in prehistoric times, and you have to help a mastodon with a toothache at some point. I seem to remember. Maybe it's a woolly mammoth. That had a really good sense of humour. So at one point you need to get something from a temple and we were trying to work out for ages like uh, we do we did loads of take thing take that or have you no respect it was like have you no respect have you no respect and then we said pray and it was like have you no respect oh damn it, it was like kneel and pray it was like yes you now may have the thing Oh, for God's sake. Did you ever play the game based on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that Douglas Adams actually wrote? I think I did, yeah. Well, there was a bit in it where I never ever got past this until years later I looked it up on the internet how to do it, but there was a door that you had to impress by showing it something it had never seen before. 
And everything showed it, say, that's no big deal, anyone could have a dressing gown. And the best thing was, it said, that's no big deal, anyone could have a thing their aunt gave them where they don't know what it is. (laughs) (laughs) But that that door kept me up at night so many times, I never got past it. Oh, no, so what what was the answer in the end? There was something you had to do later on that meant you had... uh, See, I thought it was going to be tea and no tea, which it was, but you had to remove your common sense first. Oh, Because it always said, you have no tea. Right. Common sense dictated that you couldn't have tea and no tea, but later you could remove your common sense but oh it's all very complicated and very long too much time and that's exactly what douglas adams wanted so <laughs> the one game that really turned me into a proper gamer which is much much later was grim fandango which i just absolutely love i love with all my heart and i've played both the old and the new version the new version is exactly the same game just with updated graphics but it's just the most beautiful and wonderful game. Again, it's got that quirky sense of humour. It's a bit point and click, but it's just clever and fun. And Tim Schaffer, who did it, he also um, was involved with the Monkey Island games, which I love, and Stacking, which is a great one of his. Yeah, there's all sorts of just really, really nice games that Tim Schaffer has been involved in. And if you had told me... Well, basically, I got into it, it, my my ex got me into Grim Fandango. I don't like much about my ex, but Grim Fandango, I still got the poster he gave me on my wall. Yeah, the main thing I remember about because, like you say, there's a lot of humour in these things. And the main thing I remember about Monkey Island was like Grim Fandango. It used a system called Scum VM for the programming, but there was a pirate mm. in. I think the first Monkey Island has a bad saying, "Ask me about Scum VM," <laughs> and you ask him about it. It's a big technical explanation, almost like a sales pitch. At the end, it says "ha ha." Lovely. Well, the scum bar is where you go, isn't it? In, um, it is. Yes. Yeah. In Monkey Island, you fight like a cow. <laughs> <laughs> but there was one game that was tailor-made for me, which has a reputation for being the worst Spectrum game ever. I have mentioned it on here before. Have you any idea what it is? No. Oh, Ghostbusters. No. The yeah, Ghostbusters basically played itself, but yeah. no, it, was, it was the gift by regards to Broad Street game. Oh, yes, you have mentioned Yes, that where you're Paul yes. McCartney and you yes. have to go and wait at tube stations for your band to turn up. It seems very unlikely that that's what Paul McCartney does. So we had a Commodore 64. My friend Dan had an Amiga and my childminder had a ZX Spectrum. So I used to play all three at different times. And on the ZX Spectrum, the game that we loved was Pajamarama, where you had to pick up two things at once and they would do like when you got the right two things, they would open various doors and stuff. So it was that and um, Manit Minor which I'm now going to be humming that bloody tune from all evening. See, I always, because I'm me, I always got the games like, if I'm regards to Broad Street, where they just weren't very good. They'd just been put out, you know, as a tie-in thing. Like Ghostbusters as well. Like the Evil Dead game. Now, people don't believe me that existed. There was a game of the Evil Dead, which came with no instructions. So if you hadn't seen the film, which I hadn't at that point, you couldn't <laughs> work out what you were doing. There's a Young Ones game where still nobody can work out what's actually happening in it. They just seem to wander around the house randomly saying things like, I'm going to pick up the so-called girly dress. And nothing nothing happens in it. it. There's no way of winning it. Yeah. No, I have a vague memory of getting really excited because there was a Young One game and then playing it and thinking, this is just nonsense. <laughs> Although I will say the Thunderbirds game was really, really good. And nobody remembers that. I've still got that because it came in a lovely sort of plastic wallet box. Basically, Thunderbirds 1 and 2 were in a pyramid. They got lost in it and they had to move blocks around different mazes to get out of it. 
and used equipment like the mole and so on to tunnel through bits. But Thunderbird 1 could only move blue blocks, Thunderbird 2 could only move green blocks, and you could trap yourself quite easily. Mm. So it had nothing to do with Thunderbirds, really, which is probably why it was good, but it was a great game. Oh, there you go. Well, I never played that one. There was quite a good Alice in Wonderland game for the Commodore 64, and Boulder Dash, that was another one I loved. Did you ever play Boulder Dash? I loved Boulder Dash. It wasn't really a tie-in of anything, to be fair. No, no, it wasn't a tie-in for anything, but it was. Uh, I used to love the tinkling. If you got loads and loads of um, diamonds to fall, they made such a lovely noise. I love the theme music of it as well, which I might use at the end of this, actually. I'm not sure if anyone ever based a game on your last choice, but you can hear a bit of it now, and then you can tell me whether they did or not. This is Herman Brooks. Herman is just like the rest of us. Every day, he has to make all kinds of decisions. Like what to wear, whom to date, and when to panic. Now, these decisions should be easy, but if you take a look inside Herman's head, you'll see why he sometimes has trouble making up his mind. I'm Herman's intellect. Without me, he couldn't hold his job, pay his rent, or tie his shoes. I'm Herman's sensitivity. Without me, he wouldn't feel tenderness, honesty, or love. The good things in life. I'm Herman's anxiety, and I keep him out of trouble. And believe me, there's trouble everywhere. I'm Herman's lust. Without me, he'd miss out on all the good stuff. You know, fun, food, babes. Sometimes they agree. Usually they don't. But this struggle is going on inside all of us. And it's all going on inside Herman's head. Okay, well, that's the intro from Herman's head. This is really, really not showing up my feminist credentials very well. Herman's Head was one of those things. It was on like a really late at night, around the same time as Get Stuffed. So it was one of those things I got. I was very nocturnal. I started becoming very nocturnal when I was doing my A-levels because my house, you've met my folks and my family, and we're not a quiet bunch by any stretch of the imagination. So the only way I could get my homework done was to wait until everybody else had gone to bed. (laughs) And so I would just stick the telly on all night on ITV, which is the only one that went all night in those days, and various things would come on. And Herman's Head was one of the ones I liked. And it was basically, it was this guy. It was Inside Out, but 20 years ago and ruder. So it was this guy. Some of the cast have gone on to much, much bigger things. So he's his, um, Hank Azaria was in it. Yardley Smith. Jane Sibbert, who played Carol in Friends, was in it. and that, But they were his real life office mates i think and friends and i think he fancied carol and he was friends with yardley smith but what you saw was his external life where he worked in this office and his internal life which was four people who lived in his head and represented his various sort of moods so you had like his good side like the you know that kind of cartoon of an angel and devil on your shoulder so his good side um his animalistic side who just wanted uh, to, to eat and drink and shag his kind of nervous side um who just wanted to hide away from everything and then his sort of clever more intellectual snooty side and they would obviously all argue and try to have ascendancy and i think the animal won out quite often even though he was sort of seemed to be quite a nice lad but yeah it was it was quite an interesting depiction of the internal workings of a young man <laughs> well you say of uh... Quite a few of the cast went on to bigger and better things. Do you remember who played his sister in some episodes? No. 
Jennifer Aniston. Good God, no. Who I think she had her own characters in her head. Really? Possibly. How interesting. But what I remember really liking was that the sort of voices in his head were all in what I assume were rooms full of junk from his memories. Yeah. It was all like mismatched, you know, like hung up baseball caps and space invaders machines and so on yeah yeah i think that was that's absolutely right i mean it was kind of depicting his head as a sort of junkyard of of crap and memories and stuff and and yeah that that kind of attic-y feel well it's quite interesting that you know around that time i mean yeah they did tend to be on you know in quite late time slots over here but there were a lot of american sitcoms that were really pushing the envelope in terms of depicting in the better comes people's real lives tackling what weren't shock issues but taboo in some ways previously issues there was this there was dream on there was to an extent friends i'd say when you watch the early ones again it's interesting how much chatter there is about weed smoking and so on mm. and things like that but they're all the sort of programs that i'm sure you know will be will be found wanting and problematic if oh, they yeah. were dug up now, but the thing was, they weren't really problematic at the time in their context. I mean, you know, they were, obviously, but maybe people lose sight of the fact there was a different time, and there were liberating elements of them that have been lost with the passage of time. I think even at the time, I remember watching the episode where all he wants to do is say Britsky between a woman's breasts. Okay, fair not enough. Not necessarily. <laughs> he, he, by the early 90s, that was a bit, Okay. <laughs> Okay, I was thinking of friends mainly there. I'll go back Fair in the enough. corner now. But yeah, I mean, I, I I know what you're getting at. I I do think that we yeah, there is a certain amount of judging the past by modern standards, which is difficult. It's not to say, I mean, I I find the fat suit stuff in Friends just really awful. But I found it really awful at the time. I was like, there's the one thing that you you think it's okay to laugh at her for. Do you know what I mean? The constant refrain of is Chandler gay is quite a weird one, but. Ultimately, yeah, Friends was funny and sweet for a while, and then it was really annoying and boring, but we all watched it anyway. Uh, I just don't think that you can judge it too harshly, except that you can learn from it. You know, these things are no longer okay. So it is worth thinking about what we think is okay now, and would that what would that look like in 20 years' time? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one thing that really struck me, I'm sure a number of people listening will have found exactly the same thing, Rewatching the goodies, the mm. complete box set, most of it is extremely right on, apart from what bothered me most was, it's more in the early ones, Bill constantly chasing women in speeded up motion, which makes it even worse somehow, <laughs> somehow that does. But the other one was the episode where they're kidnapped and sold as, basically sold as slaves to be black and white minstrels. At the time, that would have been considered pretty daring to be having a go at, you know, the beloved Black White Minstrel show, yeah. to be just saying this is wrong, and, you know, this is what it's comparable to historically. But it kind of looks wrong now, in a way that it shouldn't. Particularly the fact that it starts off as a parody of Roots. Really? Which again probably seemed like, you know, it probably seemed like a bit punching the air at the time. Yeah, like, yes, they've watched Roots too. And watching it now, I've just felt like, you can't really make fun of Roots, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. but no matter what really your intentions are. You know. But Herman's head, it sounds 
So I thought we might not be judging it too harshly. No, I mean, Herman's Head was an absolutely silly piece of nonsense that I remember quite fondly because I used to enjoy watching it in the middle of the night. The other one that I loved that was on at 5.30 every morning was a soap opera that nobody but me remembers. If I'm the only person who basically remembers Sunset Beach, I'm really only the only person who remembers Riviera. And Riviera was brilliant. It was made by EU TV. And it was made in English, but with actors from all over Europe with very thick accents. Oh, this sounds like El Dorado Plus. So sold it already. Was, it was like a really, really cheap, shoddy version of El Dorado. No, so that it, was El Dorado. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I mean. I mean, if you can imagine El Dorado with about a tenth of the budget and even worse acting and much more over the top storylines, that was Riviera. It was wonderful. And do you think Riviera would stand up well out of context today? No, I don't think it stood up well then. That's why I was on at 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> the last storyline on Riviera, Gabriella was in love with someone that she thought that, that she then found out that the someone she was in love with was her brother so decided instead to marry her psychiatrist klaus and then klaus found out that he's not her brother but didn't tell her before the wedding and so she married the man she didn't love sunset beach was it was an air and spelling and it was just really ott so they actually had an evil twin storyline there was a couple of characters Annie and Meg, who would have really long dream sequences where people would dress up in all sorts of weird costumes and stuff. It was basically, it was like a kind of Dynasty meets Neighbours because it was much, they were, weren't nearly as posh as the people in Dynasty. I mean, some of them were rich, but most of them weren't. It was just, you know, the storylines were just so insane that they couldn't really be topped. There was the wife of the police chief who ran off with his priest brother, the priest was hot, though. I would have run off with the priest, brother. <laughs> but yeah, it was just it was, it was just bonkers. And I remember quite, I remember watching it. I'd watched it for a couple of years at this point. And then I suddenly found myself being really attracted to Ben. I was like, I've never fancied Ben before. Why am I suddenly attracted to Ben? And then it turned out that Ben was actually his evil twin. And I, clearly, I just like evil men. So yeah, so they're just the really, really interesting uh, spotlight into my psyche there. <laughs> But you're not making any excuses for Herman. No, no. Herman was just a, a silly man in a bad suit. There's plenty of them out there in politics, I think, you found. No, <laughs> that's fair, fair. OK, well, I think we'll be fairly sure nobody will find Rockford from Boulder Dash problematic because <laughs> all he did was move dirt so that boulders could fall. And like I promise, we're going to play out the theme for that. So, Emma, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.